Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever, you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For you are brought to an end, for we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us number, to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servant, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord be, Lord our God, be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we look into your word and worship you in song and fellowship. Be with Josh as he brings your word this morning. Amen. Well, let me invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 90 once again. Hopefully you followed as Ryan read for us a few minutes ago, page 496, or the Bible app, or just look it up online. Psalm 90. I'm especially, I'm especially thankful to be here with you this morning. I'm always thankful to be here with you, but this morning, particularly thankful because as of about midnight last night, I was still in Milwaukee. Um, my flight was scheduled to leave around 10.30. It got delayed an hour and a half or so and then had to be de-iced and all of those other things, so got in early this morning. I had made just a quick trip back to my home state, uh, flew out Friday evening and back this morning to uh, support a very close high school friend of mine whose father passed away suddenly just a couple of weeks ago and his memorial service uh, was yesterday. And so I went back there to be part of that. Thankfully, both my buddy and his dad know Christ. His dad knows Christ even better now than he ever has. And so the service was delightful. It was um, everything that a gathering like that can be and ought to be. Tremendous testimonies of an amazing uh, life of service, 
love for his family, all of the things that any of you would want to hear said at your own memorial service. But at the same time, it was still sad. It, it, was, it was just, I mean, why did I go all that way instead of just text or call my friend, hey, praying for you? Because those are hard times and they're once in a lifetime experiences. You know, for most of us, praise God, the death of a dad or the death of a mom, those don't happen all the time. And so it was hard to hear nieces and nephews giving tribute and, and this man's two sons, my close friend and his younger brother, give tribute. And Jerry, the fellow who passed away, came from a huge family, 11 siblings, eight girls, three boys. He was the second oldest and the oldest of the boys. And it was heart-wrenching to hear his 72-year-old, the middle brother, stand up in, in this auditorium with you know several hundred people and explain to them how hard it was to hear that he had to be the older brother now. For 72 years, he's not had to do that. He's just been the middle brother, whose job is to criticize the older brother and be and pick on the younger brother. And, uh, and he was up there kind of laughing and sobbing at the same time. And it was, I was struck by how hard it is to know what you say at that moment when they're surprised to see you. I didn't even tell my friend I was coming because I was flying an airline that none of you uh, are pilots for. Um, and I'm sorry about that, but it was the cheapest and most direct you know, flight I could get to Milwaukee. And, and because of that, I didn't know for sure if I was actually gonna get there. So I didn't wanna tell, I didn't wanna tell my friend, hey, I'm coming and I'll, you know. So when he saw me, I, you know, my, my close high school buddy's name's Jeremy. As he was giving his tribute to his dad, he kept like, like breaking down and he's like a university teacher. I mean, he talks all the time in front of people. And afterward, he came up to me and said, man, every time I looked at you, I just started sobbing. Why did you come? And, and oh, there's, 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 no, there's no good answer you can give in that moment where, you know, I was glad to be here. I wasn't glad, I, his dad died, you know? I mean, it just, all of that made me so thankful for Psalm 90. There's no better place that I know of in Scripture to turn at occasions like that than Psalm 90, which explains the experience and instructs us how to act in light of that. It's a, it's a precious psalm to me. I've told you this in the past. I have verse 12. If you look at Psalm 90, 12, I have that verse framed on a photograph in my office. I walk past it and look at it almost every day. This will be the fourth time in about six years that I preach a New Year's sermon from Psalm 90. Years ago, I preached on the whole thing. And then since then, we've been doing a stanza at a time. Look at the title. A Prayer of Moses, a Man of God. It's not a throwaway line in Hebrew. That's the first verse of the psalm. Moses was a man who had seen a lot of death. The book of Numbers, one of Moses' five published books, it's basically a literary graveyard. The whole nation of Israelites 20 years and older had died in the wilderness in a span of just a few decades. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of funerals, dead bodies. The wilderness was a whole graveyard just littered with headstones. 
And Moses has seen a lot of death. And that's what he wants to talk to us about in this psalm. And it sounds kind of grim, right? I mean, it's New Year. We're looking forward to better things and hoping 2024 improves on 2023, which, you know, couldn't but do much better than 2020, 21, and 22. But it's actually not a bad place to be as we move into a new year. It's a great psalm for taking stock of our lives. Why? Because death is the inescapable guarantee. It's the one thing we all know about our future. We don't get off the planet alive. None of us. This psalm helps us stop avoiding it and think about it. Why would we do that at the beginning of a new year? I mean, the Bible's a big book. Psalms itself is a big book. Why pick this one? A couple of reasons. One of the primary responsibilities of a pastor is to prepare you to meet God. Much of what pastors do, we do with a view to the next life, not primarily this life. Our main job isn't so that you are well entertained on Sunday morning. Our main calling is not even that your life is comfortable right now. Our primary calling is that you are comfortable in the next life. We want you happy in a thousand years, not this afternoon. I mean, we don't want you unhappy this afternoon. We're just kind of non-committal on that. We can't do much about that. The other reason that I want to speak on this psalm and do it regularly this time of year is I do want you to live well. I'm sure we all want to live well. We realize life is precious. Time is precious. And we live better when we realize our days are numbered. I remember when I first realized that I tend to approach time like I approach water coming out of the faucet in my bathroom or kitchen. You just open the faucet and there's more of it. And every day, God just gives you more of it, more time, another day. It just keeps on flowing. And then I started to realize that's not actually the right metaphor. Time isn't like water flowing out of a tap. It's more like coins in a purse. There's a limited number of them. And once you handle and spend the last one, that's it. It's over. Well, we tend, and the claim of Psalm 90 tells us that, that we live better when we keep that in mind. This morning, we're going to deal primarily with the third stanza. I mentioned that I've preached on the first and second stanzas, so let me just set it up for you quickly. Stanza one is verses one and two. It's all about God, specifically his eternality and his stability. His character is the answer to our fragility. Look at verses one and two. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. Not you were God or you will be God, but you are God outside of time altogether. The second stanza, verses three through six, is about the brevity of our lives in contrast to God's eternality. Look at verses 5 and 6. Moses describes it with these three devastating metaphors. A flood that strikes suddenly and sweeps away everything in its path. Jerry Vector died so suddenly it was almost hard for the family to process all these weeks later. He was not ill. 
He was as active as he had ever been. He went to bed one night, woke up at three in the morning, took a few steps and fell over dead. Shocking, like a flood, swept it away. Any plans for that day, any plans for the future, all of it, everything changed. It's also a dream. Moses compares it to our days like a dream. In other words, so vivid the moment you're in the middle of it, but gone as soon as you wake up and it's like it was all an illusion. Was that even real? And the third metaphor, grass that grows up and fades and is gone in such a short time. All of that in contrast to God, verse 4, for whom a thousand years is like a blink. A thousand years. Ten times the longest lifespan you've ever known to God is like yesterday. So fast, it's already gone. That sets up now this third stanza, which is verses 7 through 12. In the third stanza, Moses answers the question, why? If God is eternal and if he is our home, why do we die? Why are our lives so short? Why does it go like a blink? Why does the flood overwhelm us? Well, he's answering that, that question in verses 7 through 12. So let's just look at them. And that's where we'll spend the time for our meditation the rest of the morning. We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. Well, why is he so angry? Verse 8. You have, set our, uh, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Moses is developing at least four images for death. In the poetry of this stanza, death is an intruder. It is a messenger. It's a motivator. And, praise God, it's a loser. So that's what we're going to look at, those four images. Death is an intruder, but it's also a messenger and a motivator and a loser. All of that driving toward this conclusion that the thing we most avoid thinking about could be the thing we most need. That's what he says in verses 11 and 12. Did you see that? That's the conclusion of this whole stanza and really the high point of the poem. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of Who thinks about this? But if we did, it would help. Verse 12, so teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. The thing we most avoid thinking about could be the very thing we most need to think about. That's what Moses is suggesting. Why? Because of death. Because of what it is. And number one, death is an intruder. As I went through the first and second stanzas, you might have noticed Moses is operating on the assumption that death is not a natural part of life. 
contrary to the narrative in our culture, death doesn't just happen. It's something done to us. Look at verse 3. You return man to dust. Verse 5. You sweep them away. In other words, death isn't something that just happens to, to us because we are mortal human beings. Verse 7 says we know that instinctively and we hate it. Look at the end of verse 7. By your wrath, we are dismayed. We feel This is not the way life was meant to be. Other translations, instead of using the verb or or, or the the adjective dismayed, it uses terrified. We're terrified. Or the New Living Translation has, we are overwhelmed. Human life isn't meant to end like this. In fact, it's not actually meant to end at all. As God created human life, it was originally unending. This isn't the way things are naturally. Deep down inside, no matter what our culture tries to tell us, we're dismayed by the approach of death. Isn't that right? I mean, there are two general approaches to death in our culture because it's so scary and so unavoidable. Our culture either tends to live in denial, not think about it, pretend like it's not going to happen. My sister, when she first moved to Parker, said, man, Parker is trying harder than any town I've ever been in to be the city of Mayberry from the Andy Griffith show where everything works out in 20 minutes. She's like, you can't even find a cemetery in this town. Well, I mean, you can. There's one at Parker in Maine, a little bit north on the west side of Parker Road. But I mean, we do this with all of our cemeteries, don't we? We dress them up. They're almost as pretty as golf courses. Peaceful, serene. One approach in our culture is to deny it, not think about it, avoid it. The other approach is to embrace it and sentimentalize it. People say things like, death is our friend. Death is peaceful and beautiful and a natural part of life. And no matter how much you try to indoctrinate yourself with that viewpoint and reassure others that everything is okay because this is just natural, deep down inside, doesn't everything in you recoil against that? That's not normal. It is not normal to put a human body in the ground. I hate that. I stand at gravesides in rage inside. This family stricken with tears and loss, the end of hopes. Who are they going to look up to now? Who's going to provide for them now? All of those doubts and fears, it's wrong. That's why Moses says, by your wrath, we are dismayed. No matter how hard you work to tell yourself a different story, everything inside you tells you this isn't right. Death is an intruder. I mean, just imagine that you were taking an art class at the local community college and they told you draw or paint the most peaceful scene you can imagine. Perfectly idyllic, beautiful, whatever for you conveys your happy place. So, I don't know, a couple having a picnic by a river, Warm sunshine, beautiful flowers, peaceful day. How many of you have a wolf in the scene? You got a bear breaking in on this little family moment. 
You know, no, right? I mean, we know those items don't belong in the scene. That's death. Death is the ultimate intruder. Do you remember the first time you saw a body in a casket? I do. doesn't happen that often at funerals anymore. But if it's ever happened to you, if you've ever seen a dead body, do you remember that feeling of revulsion inside? Recoiling? Even if it was someone you loved. Especially if it was someone you loved. Psalm 90 confirms your sense that this is not the way it's supposed to be. That's reassuring, but it doesn't explain much. So that's where Moses goes next. Death is not just an intruder, it's also a messenger. The scene changes from a wolf breaking in on your picnic to a newsie who runs up and goes, did you guys hear? Wait till I tell you that death is that. It's actually bringing a message. And the message, according to this psalm, is that the world is cursed. And here's why. Because God is angry with humanity's sin. Verse 7. We are brought to an end by your anger. That's the reason. By your wrath we are dismayed. Why? Because you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. There's the problem from both sides. Our side and God's side. Our side, our iniquities, our secret sins. Verse 8, he sees it all. And it does not please him. God's side is, verse 7, your anger, your wrath. Again, verse 9, your wrath. There's a strong likelihood Moses was meditating on Genesis chapter 1, his other best-known work, when he wrote Psalm 90. If you look at verses 1 and 2, there's the picture there of creation. All is well, created good. And in verse 3, there's an echo of Genesis chapters 2 and 3. So you have Genesis 1 in verses 1 and 2, and Genesis 3 in verse 3, do you remember in Genesis 3 how it went? In chapter 2, God created the man out of dust and then the woman out of the man and then warned them not to sin. And when they did, in Genesis chapter 3, pronounced what specific curse over them? Death. And God put it in the terms that the original creation took place in dust you are and to dust you will return. That's what Moses is reflecting on in verse 3. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. Well, Genesis 1-3 through 3 explains why we die. Right? Every time someone dies, it's a reminder that our sin has brought us under the wrath of the living God. And Moses just states it plainly in this psalm again and again. Verse 7, we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we're dismayed. Verse 9, all our days pass away under your wrath. Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? We obviously need to stop and just talk about God's wrath for a moment. God's wrath is not an out-of-control fit of rage or peak. 
in the way that we experience our own wrath or the wrath of others. It's not God's wrath. It's not pent up frustration at you, indignation about how you've like, like just, he's had enough with you already. He's not some out of control parent who has an anger problem. God's wrath is not the touchiness of a crabby God who is just too narrow-minded and old-fashioned to put up with a little bit of human imperfection. It's not that God is up in heaven just going, come on already, I've had enough of you, and you're trying as hard as you can. That's the image of God's wrath, primarily because it's human wrath, but it's not divine at all. There are three things. I don't have time to go into all of them, and the psalm isn't about all of them. The psalm's primarily about the third one. But there are three things I want to say when I talk with people about God's wrath. There, there are actually many. Like, where do you get your idea of what God should be? Your, your, your sense that God should be a God of love and not a God of wrath, where did that come from? And it's easy to demonstrate that emerged from our culture, not from some transcendent standard. Could talk about that. But the things that... I want to point out that are germane to what Psalm 90 is saying is, number one, we started it, right? This animosity, we started that. In the Garden of Eden, God put Adam and Eve in paradise, gave them everything they need, one rule, don't eat that tree, opportunity to demonstrate love and submission. And before they even ate the fruit, they started this enmity problem with God, didn't they? I mean, The tempter started it. He said to Eve, did God really say? And Eve said, well, I mean, he said we can't eat it or touch it lest we die. And the tempter jumped in and said, well, God knows that the day you eat of it, you will be like him. And when Eve saw that the tree was good for food and offered knowledge to make one wise, she took it and ate it. In other words, what brought that temptation home for her was that sneaking suspicion that God wasn't giving her everything she could get out of life. We started the problem. And that wasn't just Adam and Eve. It happens in our own lives as well. I mean, if you're honest, doesn't it annoy you a lot of times the way God runs your life? A couple years ago, we were re-roofing our house and we were spreading that membrane that goes under the shingles and a wind kicked up. And it's hard to spread a sail on your roof. We were like, you know, being, and I remember this impulse in me just, you know, and I just hollered out, what's the point of the wind right now? (laughs) Well, who am I hollering at? (laughs) Not the trees, they're not making it blow. And then last summer, we're hiking in Rocky Mountain National Park. We're putting up a tarp to create a little bit of a roof over our, kitchen area and the wind starts blowing and it ripped all the grommets out of our tarp and and again I find this impulse rise up in me and I'm like why and thankfully that time I cut it off because I realized I'm yelling at God and I'm a pastor I'm supposed to be better than that I guess I and I'm just not and I don't know if any of us is our, our we started this problem don't in other words it's not that God's wrath started this, you know, combat between us. It's, it's our own. We don't want him to control our life, run our life, be in charge. At least not the God of the Bible who has all authority and is not accountable to us whatsoever. So God's wrath didn't just come out of nowhere. The second thing I usually like to point out to people is God's love requires a strong reaction. The opposite 
of love is not wrath or anger. The opposite of love is just disinterest altogether. I mean, isn't it true that when someone you love has some, when something, when something destructive comes into the life of someone you love, doesn't that like bring out your, your defensiveness, your protectiveness, even your wrath and anger against that thing? All the more if it's a thing they're doing to themselves. Doesn't that make you mad at them? It's God's love when he sees in us our self-destructive tendencies to do things that will destroy our life and destroy his glory. That It's his love that motivates that strong reaction of wrath. But none of those things are Moses' major concern. What Moses wants to draw our attention to is that his wrath is perfectly just. That's verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. In other words, God has examined our lives impartially and this is what we deserve. And, and, and we expect justice from our rulers, don't we? Do you remember the riots and, well, some of you don't because it was too long ago, but in 1992, in July, or excuse me, in April, when the city of Los Angeles was just boiling for days because four officers from the Los Angeles Police Department had been acquitted in the videoed beating of Rodney King. Do you remember that? Regardless of how you feel about whether the verdict was just or not, the city felt like it wasn't, and because they demand justice from their rulers, the city blew up, tore itself apart. Should we have a less standard of God? Like the God that rules all, do we want him to not be just? Do we want him to just give people a pass all the time, not feel anything at their sinful behaviors? No, we have no excuse for how we've behaved. We can't beg off and charge God with injustice when our number is called and we face death. It's what we deserve. God's anger and wrath don't make him any less perfect or worthy of our love. His beauty is not tarnished by his wrath. It's upheld by his wrath. In other words, death is a messenger. There's a problem between you and God. Don't ignore it. Don't avoid it. Don't minimize it. The story is told of Henry David Thoreau, the essayist, who was on his deathbed. He struggled his whole life with tuberculosis and he was basically bedridden from the time he was 40. And his aunt, who was a devout believer, came and met with him shortly before he died, and she said to him, I hope you've made your peace with God. And Thoreau said, I didn't know we had quarreled. Ever smug and ever witty. And saying what so many people feel, I'm satisfied with the state of things between me and God. He should be satisfied too. And death comes along and says, well, he's obviously not. And you're not going to win that discussion. So you should think about this. Death is a messenger beckoning you. Don't let this keep going. Figure this out. Which brings us to the third image for death in this psalm. Death is a motivator. Verse 10, the years of our life are 70. 
When I read that in like my 20s and 30s, I was like, sweet. Here's your life for 70. I got zero things to worry about. Good to go. And I blinked. And the seven is just a number or two away. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. Think about this. If you're 25 years old, your life is one third behind you. And I will tell you, that second third goes way faster. I mean, you're just picking up speed. And the same thing will happen to you. I remember when I was a youth minister, I was uh, 33 years old. And our high school seniors, of course, were 17 and 18. And they're all smug about how I'm so old. And we had two elders on our elder team, one who was 65 and had just retired, another who was 80. And I said to them, George and Jim, do you guys think, uh, uh, what, what, like, what like stage in life do you think those guys are? You think of them as the same kind of category or dramatically different? They're like, oh yeah, they're both old guys, retired. And I said, they have the same distance in age as you and me. You're 18, I'm 33, George is 65, uh, 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 Jim is 80. You got 15 years, that's not that much time. You blink and suddenly you are the old guy. Verse 11, but who's thinking about that? Not really anybody. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Who gives you your due? The fear of God is the Bible's way of describing what, it, what, it, what happens in your soul when you take God seriously. That's how I put it. Fear of the Lord is taking God seriously. If we took him seriously, we would think about this. The fact that we don't demonstrates we just don't take him that seriously. That, that's Moses' assumption, right? Who considers the power of your anger have you ever imagined waking up, opening your eyes, and you're staring into the face of the living God who created all that is, who sustains everything in the universe? And it's just you and Him. That day will come. Can you imagine if you show up and He's angry at you? Not, 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 can you imagine if you show up on a bad day for him? He doesn't have bad days. And remember, his anger is not like human wrath. It's not just peaked because of something you've just recently done. Can you imagine if you show up and your sins are not forgiven? Where will you turn? There's a defense attorney available, but if you've not, if you've not retained him, what will you do? I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm just explaining what verse 7 says is normal. Most people aren't thinking about this. And they should be. Death shows up and brings home the point. It's the most powerful motivator that we have. And verse 11 leads right into verse 12. So teach us, teach us, Moses turns this into a prayer. Teach us to number our days 
that we may get a heart of wisdom. We live better, more wisely when we realize our days are numbered. I was in the Midwest Friday night, Saturday. Man, you got to know. There's water everywhere out there, right? I mean, they call them the Great Lakes for a reason. Most of the time they're struggling, the farmers out there, to figure out where to put the water, not where to get enough water. And so when I woke up Saturday morning, a little bit stiff, sleeping in a bed, not familiar, pillows not my own. Man, you got to know I stood in that shower and just let that water run and just, it's going down the drain and nobody cares. There's water everywhere. Different from out here, isn't it? Like I'll jump in the shower, get wet, wash my hair, turn it off, soap up, turn it back on, rinse off, jump out. I'm not trying to be, you know, some holy, I, I, I just realized there's not that much water around and I'd like my kids to be able to live here. <laughs> Someone just clap. It's <laughs> the problem with using personal illustrations. I'm not trying to say, I'm just saying, look, when a commodity is scarce, you deal with it differently. You live better when you realize your days are not just going to keep coming like water out of a faucet. I did a little research for this sermon with the great philosophers uh, Calvin and Hobbes. And um, (laughs) there's a story in that comic strip that ran for a few weeks about Calvin's cardboard box, which he turned into a duplicator. He used to have it on its side, and it was a transmogrifier that could turn him into anything or anything into anything. He turned it upside down, and it became the duplicator. And his idea was he didn't want to do his homework, he wanted, and he didn't want to clean the house like his mom asked. He just wanted to play. So if he made a duplicate, that guy could do all the work, and he could play. And as soon as the dial, uh, as soon as the button gets pushed, Hobbes says, scientific progress goes boink. You know, that was that line. You hear these, you see these two little voices from inside. I did it, it worked, I'm a genius. And the other voice bubble coming out of the box says, shut up, you liar, I invented this. So immediately you know this isn't gonna go well. There's two Calvins and neither one of them wants to do the work. And then eventually one of the Calvins duplicates himself and there's like five of them and he keeps getting Calvin, they keep getting Calvin in trouble. And so at the end, he like, turns the box on its side, turns all five of the duplicates into little worms and throws them in the garden where they can live happily ever after. And Hobbes says, you know, well, I mean, after that, what are we going to do now? And Calvin says, well, I sure am glad. I guess I learned my lesson about the duplicator. And Hobbes goes, what's your lesson? What's the lesson? What'd you learn? And Calvin goes, I, uh, um, I, so many lessons he could be learning, right? You can't escape hard work. There's no benefit in trying to take shortcuts. Instead, he goes, okay, fine, so I didn't learn anything. Sue me. (laughs) And Hobbes says, that's us. Live and don't learn. (laughs) Okay, this is a heavy text and a heavy sermon, and so I thought I should infuse a little bit of that, but the point is a heavy point. We have two options face death and what sin does to us or live out of touch with reality. Death is a messenger. It has come to you. Don't live and don't learn. Live and learn. And when you see people die, learn. We need the perspective of this psalm about the brevity of our lives in that moment we will meet God and the weightiness of that day. Let it rest on you. 
because otherwise you'll never see the glory of this fourth thing that is here in Psalm 90. Not as clear as these others, but it's here that death is a loser. Death is a failure. It's a defeated foe. It doesn't get the last word. The psalm isn't primarily about death. It's primarily about God. It starts with God in verses 1 and 2. It ends with God. In, in, in verses 13 to 17, this glorious prayer and plea for God's help and grace and mercy. And everything in the psalm pivots at verse 13. Do you notice that? We'll, we'll look at it probably more closely next year when we look at the fourth stanza. But verse 13 Everything verses, you know, 3 through 11, 3 through 12 is a lament. But verse 13, the tone changes. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and as many years as we have seen evil. There's a turning point at verse 13 in this psalm. Why? Because there, God's covenant relationship with His people comes into view. The word Lord is used twice in this psalm, but it's two different Hebrew words. In verse 13, it's all caps. It's the name of God, the covenant name, Yahweh. Moses refers to God as Israel's covenant God in verse 13. That's the reason for the pivot. In verse 1, when it says, O Lord, you have been our dwelling place, it's the Hebrew word Adonai. It just means God, ruler of all. In other words, in verses 1 through 11, Moses is viewing all of humanity as living in God. Children of Adam, related to God by creation. But in verses 13 and following, Moses is describing relationship to God through covenant. And you can come to him in the covenant and plead for mercy. That's what he does. Verse 13, return Yahweh, our God, the one who's made promises to us, have pity on your servants. All of the anger and wrath, iniquity and secret sin, all of our days under our wrath, All of that goes away when you get to the second half of this psalm. Why? Because Moses knew, Moses saw in shadows what we see in crystal clear realities. That is, for those in the covenant, there are verses in this psalm that no longer define us. Do you realize that? For those in Christ, all our days do not pass away under God's wrath. Because we're not children of Adam anymore. We're not just created by God. We're in covenant with God through Christ. We've come through mercy. Friends, our predicament will not be solved in this death and limited days problem and sins unforgiven. That predicament will not be solved by wise living. We cannot change our sinful nature. And as long as God sees our sins, there's no hope. Our only hope is for a change in God. And that's what Jesus offers. Because the gospel is the good news that the kind of change in God we need has happened because of Jesus. He has turned from wrath to pity. Our experience changes from being dismayed to being filled with joy and pleading that our days may be filled, that we may rejoice all our days. How how did this happen? How was death defeated? 
Well, another prophet, later than Moses, explained how it was going to happen. Isaiah 53, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. It's a picture of dismay. Jesus took that all the way where? Well, we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Just like we are. That our years are brought to an end by Him. Well, He was smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. On Him was the chastisement, here it is, that brought us peace. And with His stripes, we are healed. Jesus, the most loving, beautiful, powerful, wonderful man who ever lived, became the object of God's wrath and suffered death. See, friends, the God of the Bible is not a pagan deity whose, whose anger must be assuaged by some sacrifice of men. He's a God unlike one you'll find anywhere else. Because it wasn't men who took the initiative to turn away the wrath of God and make Him friendly. It was God taking the initiative. The angry, loving God. Through the sacrifice of His own Son, Jesus absorbed that wrath against our many sins. God's wrath fell. Jesus' body was broken. His blood flowed. And He died. And God's wrath was satisfied. That's the Gospel. The Gospel is not the good news that God punishes some people for sins and not some other sins and hopefully you're in the other group that God just decides not to punish. The Gospel is the good news that all sins get punished, but in Jesus, He punishes another person, just not you. That's the good news. That's how death gets defeated. That's why death is a loser because Jesus rose again proving that God's wrath was fully exhausted and that his heart toward his humanity had changed. A.W. Tozer wrote, God's eternity and man's mortality persuade us that faith in Jesus is not optional. For every man, it must be Christ or eternal tragedy. That's right. So how do you live wisely? What does verse 12 mean? Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. It means trust Jesus. That's a heart of wisdom. And I don't say that just to people in the room who aren't trusting him at the moment. I say that to all of us. Trust Jesus. Wake up every day and reacquaint yourself with what Jesus has done for you. Wake up every day. Become aware again. Okay, I'm breathing. I'm conscious. I've got another day coming out of the tap. More water. Another coin from the purse. And then become aware that I live in grace today because of Jesus. And your prayer will be, verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. God, if you'd give me Jesus, the most precious thing you could give, surely today you can keep me happy. You can give me joy. Satisfy me with your love. Verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. I kind of like that prayer of Moses because it's so modest. The New Testament writers don't say anything like that. Hey God, we've had this much trouble. Give us this much grace. New Testament writers are like, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Way more. Or, 
2 Corinthians 4.17, God is working for us through our sufferings an eternal weight of glory that far surpasses them all. Or Ephesians 2.7, in the coming ages, He will show the immeasurable riches of His grace. It takes eternity for God to pour out all of His grace on His people. So friends, what do we do with all of this? We number our days and live wisely, which simply means look to Jesus every single day for unlimited favor from God. All right, let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us live while indeed we are alive. Not just exist, certainly not fritter away our time on trivialities, but help us live every day feasting on your grace given us in Jesus. We pray that you would use death, this intruder, to actually drive this message into our heart and motivate us to be different in how we relate to you and how we relate to life and how we think about our death. Father, keep death at bay in our church. We don't embrace it as a friend. I pray that you would keep us safe and well Heal those among us who are sick and yet help us be wise knowing it's inevitably going to come. Jesus, thank you that death has been conquered and we praise you for all of this in your great name. Amen.